I'm Ben, and you're listening to the Sound Logic Podcast. This is Mike. Each episode, we discuss one of music's greatest albums from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 list. Brought to you by two guys with no credentials. Welcome back, everyone, and thanks for joining us once again. And today we are discussing album number 39 on Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 Albums of All Time list. This album is Please Please Me by The Beatles. As we sometimes do here on the SoundLogic podcast, we have a special guest with us. Uh, I want to introduce my friend Ann Erdman. Ann uh, used to be the public information officer for the city of Pasadena, California. And uh, right about the time when I lived out there, both she and I had um, blogs where we sort of published sort of the daily life of Pasadena. And we got to know each other through um, what at the time, at least, was sort of a robust blogging peer connected culture people who would share photos together who would comment on each other's posts and things like that and um it was really a gift for me we arrived in pasadena um in the fall of 2007 to uncover this kind of hidden community of these uh bloggers photo bloggers and to to find some people who kind of helped us uh discover and explore the city that was new to us um Anne would often have uh, photo competitions. Uh, She'd post a photo of the town, uh, sometimes a historic photo, and then ask people to guess where it was. And I was lucky enough to win one of those contests. I don't even know what the photo was at this point, but... um, I got to go into City Hall and uh, and pick out a little Pasadena-related gift as the prize winner of that particular contest. And what I picked out is a Christmas tree ornament that still hangs on our Christmas tree to this day um, and uh, gives us a lovely reminder of our four years that we spent in that that beautiful city. Um, People who are not familiar with Pasadena will recognize City Hall as well because it was the stand-in on uh, parks and recreation for the city of Pawnee's uh, City Hall. But that's where Anne worked for many years and um, and where I got to know her just a little bit in the time that our, our, our lives, our paths crossed over. And we're really glad to have you with us here on the SoundLogic podcast. Um, Anne, I'm sure there's so much more to you. I know you've been um, in different kinds of public information roles throughout your life. I'm curious how you introduce yourself these days. Well, these days, I introduce myself ordinarily as happily retired. (laughs) Oh, it sounds wonderful. (laughs) Uh, uh, But just so that people listening know, uh, a public information officer is a government classification that really translates in the private sector as public relations director. That's pretty Hmm. much what it is. So media relations, community relations, publicity, that kind of thing. And I Mm. uh, did that job for the city of Palm Springs for several years before I came here to Pasadena, where I performed those duties for 22 years. And uh, prior to Palm Springs, I worked for 13 years in the private sector as a, an account executive, senior account executive, creator, director, copywriter uh, at advertising and public relations agencies in San Diego, 
the Bay Area and Palm Springs. Wow, that's amazing. Well, um, thanks for that legacy. You definitely made us feel um, more at home in that place. And I don't think we expected to still miss Pasadena nine mm-hmm. years after saying goodbye to it. But it, I think in part because of the friendly people like you that we met there, um, it's it has stayed with us and it's still deep in our hearts somewhere. <laughs> and, and I want to let you know, Ben, that I am still in t- in touch actively with the blogging community here in Pasadena. Um, Some who are still active and Mm -hmm. some who are not so active anymore, but, but those connections are still there. In fact, I had a number of female blogger friends over here to my home for lunch about a month ago and we just had a time it was just really fun the kind of connection and person you are also means that you're often sharing little aspects about your life and one thing that caught my eye in the last few months was a post that you made about being able to see the Beatles perform live when you were younger. And uh, I thought, boy, we've got an episode here coming up on the Sound Logic podcast where we're <laughs> going to tackle their debut album and asked if you would join us and you said you were willing. So um, I'm glad it's all come full circle. Um, we were talking just off mic here before we began and, and already some questions were surfacing in our minds. Uh, Mike, did you have uh, anything you wanted to sort of start with before we get into the album details, questions you might have for Anne as someone who's seen the Beatles? I have so many, but I'm going to try and <laughs> keep it very concise and I'm going to stay on task and I'm not going to get distracted. That's my commitment to both of you. <laughs> that sounds very unlike you. <laughs> it is. I'm, just, I'm, I'm making a, a conscious effort. And my first question for you is about this album. And when I say album, I mean the LP. Uh, I heard you mention that you have a large collection of Beatles records yeah. and uh, uh, that this is one of the albums that you have. Do you remember uh, when you first got it, which is an interesting question for this album, because as we'll discuss, it wasn't released initially in the U.S. Right. So can you tell us a little bit about your Beatles LP collection and about this album in particular? Yes. The, the first Beatles album that I had was the Meet the Beatles album. Okay. And I, uh, I was probably maybe 14, 15, something like that, maybe 14 at the time. And uh, I, I, I did have some 45s, a couple of 45s mm-hmm. of the Beatles at the time. But, but albums were you know, more expensive. And right. so mm-hmm. I and most people who I knew bought 45s of songs yes. that we liked the yeah. most. Right, and so eventually got the Meet the Beatles album, and oh my gosh, just as a, I, I, I want to say I was 14, so we'll just say that <laughs> it changed my life as I knew it at the time, and I remember listening to that. Well, first of all, begging my parents to let me buy this album. 
Mm. <laughs> but I, I, I didn't have enough in my allowance to afford that and a couple other things that I wanted to get. And so, sure enough, they reluctantly, I must say, because of, you know, <laughs> these mock top lads. Right, their hair, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just, that just couldn't be right. And, uh, but, but sure enough, I was able to convince them to... Uh, just give me just enough money to be able to afford to buy this album. I think that I probably wore out the record player needle that I had at the time on this album, <laughs> <laughs> both sides. And, oh, had, wow. and I have such a vivid memory of having some neighborhood girlfriends over uh, as soon as they found out that I had this album. And they came, there were maybe five or six of them in my room, and I had a portable record player at the time. My parents had a hi-fi. Okay. My parents had a hi-fi and that whole setup, you know, but we weren't allowed right. to use that. But I had been given <laughs> a, a portable record player for my birthday, and it was the kind that folded up, and then you could bring the turn, you know, pull the turntable down. And so that was sitting on the floor of my bedroom and we were sitting in a, a semi-circle I, I suppose <laughs> it was around this record player and hanging on every single note every single <laughs> lyric every single little nuance here and there and those hmm. accents oh lord have mercy <laughs> <laughs> it's just so exciting and and unlike anything that we had ever heard before. And the albums that I had in my collection pre-Beatles were more like just children's albums and, you know, some, some mm. new folk albums and that kind of thing. But this was something different. And it felt uh, grown up? Yes. As a matter of fact, yes. And like I said, hmm. unlike anything we had heard before, we uh, I, I had a, a couple of the 45s, but this was this extensive collection on one album of yeah, all these right, great, yeah. great hmm. songs. And uh, so we got through both sides of this album. Most of us barely made a peep. The whole entire time. <laughs> uh, my, my mother probably wondered if I was still alive back there in my room. And yeah, right. <laughs> when side A was over with, everybody just kind of held their breath while I while I turned the album over and placed the needle back, <laughs> back on for side two. And, you know, there was all this just eager anticipation, you know. And when the second wow. side was finished... It was really time for people to go home. This was, I, I, I remember specifically that this was a school day. And so by now, it was late afternoon, most likely. And it was time for kids to go home. And I remember my mother came back and, and, uh, and knocked on the door and said, okay, girls, you know, it's time to, time to start thinking about wrapping it up because I'm going to start making dinner for the family and you're going to need to go to your houses and nobody wanted to leave it was like let's, <laughs> let's, let's start it over again 
Let's listen to it again. And because it was so fresh and different and new, and uh, it it, it just sitting here now, just articulating that experience just gives me goosebumps. Hmm. I I haven't thought it through, you know, Hmm. in that way in decades, probably. Yeah. It was a game changer. It's interesting to hear that reminiscing because I think it helps me understand the parental concern at the time. Like not only we already mentioned that they looked a little shaggy and, you know, rough around the edges, but that their children who were consuming this music were just so overwhelmingly compelled by it. It must have felt dangerous, I think, for parents to be like, oh, what kind of spell does this band have our <laughs> have our children under that they sit around the record play in a circle in silence and don't want to leave? And, you know, like that's I think it shows the magnitude of just how special it was to experience it in that moment. Yes. And, and there there was a real true concern among parents across the U.S., maybe around the world, I don't know, but about yeah. the, the influence that the Beatles might have on their <laughs> children because it was not only the long hair, and, I mean, they, they back then they did wear the matching collarless suits and yes. all of that. Yeah. Um, uh, but those, those shoes, the Beatles boots, <laughs> and they all smoked, and yeah. you know, what's, what is happening to this world today? <laughs> it was only going to get worse too. Little had they known, yeah. uh, you know, that, by, by the rest of their albums, uh, in comparison, these early ones are quite tame. <laughs> well, um, and, and yeah. it was at a time, let's say the innocence of all Americans mm-hmm. had been shattered somewhat by the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Mm, yeah. And this re- this came right on the heels of that within a year or so. Okay. And uh, and so along came these four lads, as they were called, and who spoke with these funny Liverpool accents <laughs> and smoked cigarettes yeah. and had long hair and had these pointy toe boots that nobody certainly should have a right to wear <laughs> and 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 influencing change among the yeah. young people of America. So it it, it it may be very, very difficult for people um let's say 20, 30, 40, 50 <laughs> or more years mm-hmm. younger than I am to understand. But mm-hmm. it, it was a real leaping off point in in American history for sure. I almost don't know where to begin, Mike. Um, it seems somewhat different here with this kind of uh, uh, storytelling that we've begun with <laughs> from our normal pace, and especially with this album in particular. Um, just a little contextual reminder for those of you who may not be too familiar with these early Beatles records, but um, the Beatles became enormous in the UK. Um, And in that moment in time, music didn't travel across oceans in quite the same way. Um, But they were, they were becoming this massive hit in the UK and American labels couldn't quite sort out exactly who was going to be releasing them, how to release them, um, things like that. So there was a significant delay from sort of the point where they really break through in the, um, 
in the UK market to when they arrive in the US. And there's sort of this infamous story now of um, of them being on the Ed Sullivan show and yes. cre- creating quite a stir, but then fans not necessarily having the ability to go to the store and uh, and buy their music. And so the record companies in uh, North America kind of scramble to figure out what they're going to do. And instead of launching their debut album, which had come out already in the UK, uh, please, please me. They kind of piece together albums as they initially go yeah, uh, in different kinds of ways. I think partially as a money grab, but partially as a way to, to kind of test the waters a little bit. Um, the other dynamic is that the UK market at the time would put out singles and then would have albums that follow that didn't have any of the singles on it. And the American market, I think, understood they needed both to be on the same thing. And so we get um, you can go to Wikipedia and you can look at the list of North American releases. There's all kinds of different kinds of Beatle albums that come out mm-hmm. um, before things start to get into sync, um, they eventually shift to uh, to Capitol Records, and I think it's not until Sgt. Pepper's where we sort of get a single album globally released all at the same time in sort of the same format. Um, uh, maybe it's a little before Sergeant Pepper's, but so in the meantime, before that, we we get this kind of ramshackle uh, effort in. The United States, most of the songs that we're going to talk about tonight on the, the the Please Please Me album get released under the moniker of introducing the Beatles. Um, yes. And in Canada, they mostly get introduced under the moniker of Twist and Shout. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of three albums that are subtly different, but almost the same, um, released in three different geographic regions of the world uh, to different audiences. And, and so it's kind of hard to to sort of pinpoint what it must have been like a mania and excitement aside because they kind of get released in different kinds of ways, depending on where you are. Um, it's not until the early eighties um, when the Beatles catalog kind of gets standardized and please, please me gets its official release uh, in the United States. Uh, I think it was right. about the time when they were starting to put all their albums on compact disc and they had to make a decision do we release all these sort of weird North American versions or do we just say, okay, let's go with the UK release. And so please, right. please me become sort of their standard debut album <laughs> at that point. Um, yeah. So that's a long preamble, but I think as we get into some of the details for this <laughs> album, it's important to remember the context for this, this band that was causing such a global phenomenon. I had to, kind of flip back and forth between different pages as you were talking and to just re-familiarize myself because I forget kind of which album came out when and uh, introducing the Beatles was, as you said, Ben, pretty much the American release of Please Please Me. It was almost all the same tracks. And then they had uh, maybe one, I think I saw her standing there. It was also on um, Meet the Beatles, uh, which was the one okay. that you yeah. were speaking of, Anne. And uh, but the other tracks are different. And then uh, I, I think it's not until Ben about uh, I think help maybe hard days night, but I think help was the first one that was released simultaneously. You get help and then okay. uh, rubber soul revolver, then Sergeant Peppers. Uh, but yeah, it took a few before that everyone kind of got on the same page. Uh, but I would imagine that at the time it 
probably didn't matter as much to the average fan because it's not like you could go onto Google or Twitter or whatever to see what was actually happening in the UK that day. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. If it wasn't in the newspaper daily, you know, a daily article in the newspaper uh, or not, if there was not an article in a magazine or something on television, that, that was it. And of course that, was all catch as catch and there wasn't the level of entertainment yeah. media as as mm-hmm. as later would become such a phenomenon in say the late 80s yeah which may mean or maybe one of the reasons why this is such a prolific time for them to be just churning out albums you know the from that debut in is it 63 64 um they just crank out albums uh sometimes more than one a year uh perhaps just to satisfy that hunger from their their fans who as you said Anne, only hear little snippets occasionally Mm -hmm. in a newspaper here and there um and are just hungry for the next whatever um and the other medium also for getting that kind of just little snippet news that I almost forgot about until just now um, that the young ones have no idea about was newsreels before movies in the movie theater. Oh yeah. Oh, so they would do some pop culture stuff in there too. It wasn't just, it wasn't just warfare and global events. It was the Beatles too. Hmm. Mm -hmm. You bet. Interesting. Ben, I feel like we've, we've broken, um, our kind of regular format a bit and that's okay. Uh, That doesn't doesn't bother me at all. I, I, um, we've talked about some of the details. I'm going to go through the details maybe a little differently than normal. And I'll share some things that we've written down. And, and if there's anything that you want to add in, you just jump right in and we can just kind of talk through it and, and share memories as well. Details, 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 details. So as we discussed, this album, Please Please Me, was released March 22nd, 1963. But that's only in the UK. And it was never released in the US, uh, of course, as we discussed, until the 80s. Um, And Introducing the Beatles came out in 1964. And then also... Uh, meet the Beatles in the same year. And those are the albums uh, that, or the, the album that you had, Anne. Um, and another interesting thing about this album is that the Beatles only wrote about half of the songs. Um, a lot of them had been written by other people mm-hmm. or were covers. Um, and I think when I think of the Beatles, I always think of, you know, the creative brilliance that they had and how much original music. But I think it's good to remember that they started just like a lot of other bands, playing other people's songs, playing other types of music. And that's how you uh, get your chops. And that's how you kind of uh, break into the music scene. Of course, when they're playing in, in Hamburg and in, in Liverpool, they were doing that. They were playing uh, blues and folk and, uh, some American stuff and some mm-hmm. British stuff. And uh, I think that's really reflected well on this album that they're still playing a, a lot of other people's songs, which is good. Cause I mean, a big hit like twist and shout, I love twist and shout by the Beatles, but that was not originally their song. Someone else wrote that. So it, it's cool. And I'm sure people love to hear the Beatles do that. This new band 
doing this really cool song um, and hearing John Lennon just absolutely wail on that track. Um, and it's just, it's just such a happy sound. Oh. Yeah, that's right. That was that was a that was a word that really came to mind, Anne, as I was listening through this album. It was all just very happy. I felt very happy listening to it. It's very bright. Um, there's there's a little bit of you know some negative or you know themes on it, but even then they're very playful and not to be I think to be taken too seriously. A song like Misery isn't even really that sad. <laughs> it's, it's still. <laughs> Um, it's, you know, it's still very upbeat. So that was, uh, you know, that was a word that came to mind as well. Um, this album went to number one in the UK. And I believe it stayed there, if I read correctly, for 30 weeks until uh, it got bumped by their second album. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, with the Beatles, or the second, uh, this is in the UK, and then um, introducing the Beatles, which is basically the US release of this album, uh, peaked at number two in the USA. This happiness that you talk about in the sound, uh, I think, is is building on a kind of uniquely British music genre called skiffle um okay the, the understanding i have is that uh, most of the sort of popular british music in the 50s was crooner music um you know kind of soulful uh lounge music essentially and and younger artists started to play more of a american blues inspired upbeat kind of happier uh variation that got tagged as skiffle and so um these early albums are borrowing a lot on that sound and and you hear a lot about especially um you know people like malcolm gladwell who talk about the ten thousand hours rule that you know it takes a lot of time to be successful the beatles played a lot of shows early on um playing skiffle music that was popular by a whole bunch of other people and right. so I think when that's their rise to fame, it makes a lot of sense that their first album contains a lot of covers because they're just doing what they know how to do. Um, yeah. You know, taking those upbeat tracks. And and I think they're riding a wave of popularity that, that pushes, you know, they're, they're essentially <laughs> borrowing from all this great music that's coming up and they're doing it better than anyone else. And that pushes them into the number one position on the charts and holds them there basically as long as they continue to produce music. Um, and I think it's really fascinating. They probably could have enjoyed a couple of years of a run just staying in that sweet spot. But what I think I appreciate most about the Beatles is that you watch them then begin to evolve and continue to be innovative beyond this sort of early sound. And um, I think I think because of how popular they were, a lot of bands, a lot of lesser bands maybe, would have just continued to churn out that sort of skiffle, happy um, music and, and, and made their money and uh, when it faded, just hung up their instruments and went home. Um, but they continued <laughs> to innovate and I think yeah. I think that makes them the greatest band of all time in, in a different way than if they just rode that wave for a little while and then faded into nothing. Well, not only innovators, but also in that respect, but also the quality and the genius of the composition mm, yeah. yeah, of the musical composition 
and also in in some cases not necessarily all but in certain cases the lyrics as well and and when and when there when there was a perfect combination of of the composition and the lyrics it was so masterful and and so incredible it was it was probably what people were experiencing when beethoven came behind mozart yeah and brought his own sound it's so helpful to hear that reminder as someone who who lived that because it, mike and i have talked a number of times about how hard it is to try and imagine a time before anyone had heard the Beatles sound or try and remember a time before anyone had heard the Rolling Stones, you know, fill in the blank with whatever great band you want. Um, They've become so popular that they are just like a part of the ether. You know, you just assume that that's always been there (laughs) and that's not the case. You know, Um, they were innovative in, and pushing the limits um, as they, as they rose to fame. Even to this day, Kids, oh, so many kids and teenagers know the Beatles. They know that music. They, I don't know that they understand why technically it is so special, but they, but they can sing along with it. Oh with yeah, it. so many of them can, and and that's a tribute to their parents because they're not listening to. First of all, they're not listening to radio at all, but hmm. but they're certainly not listening to, you know, MP3s or whatever of Beatles music, but their parents have albums and their parents have CDs and they're playing them. And it, the, the, that influence and the passing on of that torch and that tradition is just so important. Well, um, do you want to... Did we get to sales yet? <laughs> I don't even know. Each, each way has, has a little tangent we can tr- follow along. <laughs> it's so great. Um, yeah. uh, sales are in the millions. Um, please Please Me has been certified platinum in the U.S. and gold in Canada and U.K. and Australia. Introducing the Beatles has been certified platinum in the U.S., um, uh, the early Beatles, which was like a compilation, which had a lot of these songs, has been certified platinum in the U.S. and Canada. And the Canadian exclusive release, Twist and Shout, which had a lot of the songs from Please Please Me, was certified three times platinum in Canada. Which is not as impressive as it sounds, because platinum in Canada is very different than platinum in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think percentage-wise, it, it ends up working out to be should, about the same. Okay, There's about sure, a tenth yeah. of the Canadian population. In the, uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, you're right. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, I think hearing that it just, it, again, reminds me of how hungry people were for to get yeah. their hands on anything. You know, whatever they put out, people wanted to buy. Yeah, and even even if it was you know some of the same songs again, they just they just consumed it. Um, I think it's important to note that this album took a long time to record. Uh, they were in the studio for almost ten hours. <laughs> nine nine hours and forty five minutes. Which is amazing. 
Um, it must have been torture. <laughs> yes, it, I, I, I can't imagine. You know, uh, and what twelve tracks? Um, right. I don't even like. Man, I, I, listen. I don't know anybody listening. If if you've done any recording, um, it can be really hard, <laughs> and <Yeah>. uh, um, <laughs> you have to be pretty good to get all that done in ten hours. Yeah. You have to have good takes. Mm-hmm. You have to uh, be focused. You have to be well-practiced. You have to know your parts. You have to have a, a decent crew as well. And they did not have the type of equipment that we have today. So I think that makes it even more impressive that they were able to do this in, in one day. They probably <laughs> like when, they probably went out for pizza afterwards, you know? Like, it was like... Yeah. Well, well and, and and by by the time they were recording, uh, they already had had so much experience, and they oh, had yes. become so disciplined uh, in in their you know chosen profession uh, that they they were consummate refesh- professionals. Mm-hmm. They they cracked each other up, and they had a great time, and they fought, and they did everything else, but they knew what they were doing. Nowadays, you know, these recording companies can just bring off some, bring in some schmo off the street and say, yep. okay, record this album and, and people go wild over it. And it's no, and it, it's no good. I don't want to break anybody's heart, but. Yeah. <laughs> well, and in fact, uh, in honor of the uh, album's 50th anniversary, they did bring in some schmoes and try and, uh, and do the same feat, uh, record, re-record all the tracks in uh, in that nine-hour, 45-minute time slot. It was kind of a, I think, a who's who of who was popular in British music at the time doing their own covers of it. And there's a little mini documentary that you can look at. But you can tell everyone comes in super, super rehearsed and polished. And there's, like, directors on the sidelines kind of shouting, like, you're not getting there fast enough. And like, you know, like cracking the whip. <laughs> it's hard. It's not, it's not yeah. normal to do an album this fast right mm-hmm. now today, even with accomplished musicians in tow. Well, and, and you know, they were, they were perfectly well matched. is not the right word because they weren't matchy matchy in terms of their vocal styles and, and uh, songwriting styles and singing styles and whatnot. But they, they, well, a better word is complimented. They, they perfectly complimented each other. And that is not always the case with right. bands. In fact, yeah. often it was not the case. Mm-hmm. And there might, there, there often was a lead singer, but not everybody else sang. Right, right. With yeah. Other bands. The the album also was very expensive. They had to book three sessions uh, in the studio. They had booked uh, George Martin had booked two, but it spilled into a third. And they <laughs> grand grand total, they had to pay four hundred pounds uh, for their <laughs> time. And each Beatle was paid seven pound fifty. For each of the mm-hmm. sessions, so they actually got paid to be there too. So uh, <laughs> quite, quite extravagant, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even adjusted for inflation to 2013, it's still only ten thousand pounds, which is not much. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and I can't imagine that there was anybody in the, that studio at that time witnessing this who. 
uh, could have predicted that all these decades later, the Beatles would still be so venerated. Yeah. I, I can't imagine that they go in for, they do one day's work and record, record this album. Uh, did anybody have any idea that they were going to change uh, culture as we know it? Right. It's just, it's wild. Absolutely wild. It's like what you said, Anne, you were just going to concerts in the 60s. You didn't realize at the time that you were making history. You were part mm-hmm. of a huge part of history as you look back on it today. I I had no idea at the time. It's just something that, you know, we did. I went with, you know, girlfriends. I went with boyfriends. I went, you know, family members and whatnot. And we just went. And because these uh, now iconic, eventually I, absolutely iconic bands and, um, and, and duos and whatnot, uh, they were, touring everywhere they were just everywhere and and san diego is not los angeles mm-hmm. and it's not san diego is not a small town but it's it's not on that same beaten path mm-hmm. as los angeles and chicago and new york for example and um so it was a big deal you know to have some of these yeah. bands come to san diego and and i was just so lucky to have been able to go to live concerts and, and <laughs> see the, see the doors and see the mamas and the papas yeah. and, and, and see the birds and see the rolling stones and the wow. monkeys and Herman's hermits <laughs> and just you, you name it, the Dave Clark five and uh, hmm. just really a remarkable time. And we didn't know that we were in a remarkable time. <laughs> well, I right. don't think anyone else did either. There's a, a line in in something I read this week that said they almost just recorded the band performing live at one of their local um, clubs that they would regularly play at, but decided for time restraints that they'd do it in the studio instead, perhaps to get a cleaner sound or something like that. But it was, you know, this album almost didn't happen. And maybe because of their, you know, live kind of sense, people were like, oh, let's just, let's just record what they do every night in the club. That'll, that'll be fine. Um, so, yeah, I think, I don't think anyone was really aware of exactly what kind of historic thing they were undertaking at the time, um, which, which kind of, I think, makes it even more interesting in some ways. Uh, you know, the, no one was going gaga in quite the same way that, that we elevate people too quickly sometimes in our pop culture world today. Yes. Right. And, and when you stop and those of us who can actually think these things through intellectually yeah, are, are become hard pressed to really define what is iconically special yes. about a particular artist or a particular group. I think not, that's right. Not that, they don't, not that they don't exist. Don't get me wrong. But so many of them, like you said, have been elevated to on on a such high pedestals that they, you know, I mean, they they become rock gods in, in their yeah, pop gods yeah. in their own in their own rights, I guess, and or in 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 people's minds, and they did absolutely nothing to earn that. 
Hmm. I shouldn't say absolutely nothing. That's not fair. But in some cases, they yeah. didn't come up the hard way, and they didn't pay their dues, and you know yeah. whatnot. And they, they, uh, they something they, went they, viral on YouTube somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. One thing we often will talk about uh, as we're going through these reviews is the album artwork. Um, just mm-hmm. like every other aspect of this <laughs> album, I think we could go on many different tangents here just based on the cover alone. Um, but but it's an interesting one and a, kind of an iconic image, the four of them smiling down over the railing um, yes. at, uh, at EMI Studios. Um, there's some interesting backstory that goes with this picture. Originally hoped to be uh, standing in front of the London Zoo. In fact, I think the the mm. insect wing of the London Zoo or something like that. And um, the owners of the zoo said, no, we're not going to let a rock band pose here. And uh, <laughs> even, even though George Martin was a, a fellow of the Zoological Society, he couldn't pull enough strings, I guess, to get them to take a picture there. And so they kind of had to scramble and, and instead went back to the, the offices, I guess, and um, had them pose like this. Um, the There's also another photo shoot, apparently, that took place at George Martin's home. That was the first step, I guess, and it didn't go super well. So they they took these pictures here instead. Um, They pulled in a a somewhat significant British photographer named Angus McBean, uh, a surrealist uh, photographer who was tasked then with tackling these four kooky um, long-haired guys and he forgot the wrong lens and so he had to lie on his back at the bottom of the stairwell just to get them all into focus with the camera that he'd brought along and uh, took a couple shots and said that'll do and that was apparently it and he walked away and they got the pictures a few days later and uh, and picked this one for the cover the image has become so iconic that when EMI moved facilities, they dismantled this stairwell piece by piece and rebuilt it at their new location. People still come oh, wow. today, apparently, to, to overlook this same spot, get their picture, picture there, uh, even though it's been <laughs> taken down and reassembled in another location than where this original uh, image comes from. Um, hmm. It's different than a lot of their albums that come next because it's the record company essentially calling the shots and their manager. That's uh, right. Yeah. George Harrison apparently thought that this was not good. He called it a crap cover. And and you can see sort of beyond this where they really take the reins and say, you know, we're going to do something weird. We're going to do something unique. We're going to make it our own. Uh, and so you, you it, they really go off in different, more artistic directions um, in every album that follows. Uh, what, do, what do the two of you think when you see this this cover? Does it remind you of anything? Is it a uh, familiar cover in any way to you? I remember um, when my mom remarried and we moved to my stepdad's house, he had uh, the big uh, – one was red and one was blue, these big sort of like box sets, the CDs that they released of – one was the early 60s and one was the later 60s. And the early mm-hmm. 60s is uh, red and it's kind of got a filter on it, but it, I believe it's this photo. And then the later one is 
a photo that they took later in their career at the same spot, but that's got like a blue wash on it. But they're yes. they like John Lennon's got the big beard and the long hair and the round glasses, and they all look like what we think of when we think of like nineteen sixty-nine mm-hmm. uh Beatles. And yeah. so that's that's what I remember because of course I didn't know their history and I didn't know that this was the picture on their first album. I just like, oh that's the young Beatles and that's the old Beatles, even though it's only a spread of like six years um yep. but they look so different <laughs> here they look so young mm-hmm. and so fresh and even though they were quote shaggy they look so fresh and polished and clean and Relatively they're all wearing the clean same cut compared oh yeah <laughs> compared to you know these uh these road-worn shaggy uh hippie veterans you know that we see in the in the later albums with their long hair and their beards etc cetera, etc cetera. so um, that's what I think. I wanted to make two quick comments here. Um, when introducing the Beatles gets released in the U.S., it's a picture of them standing um, around Paul and George who are sitting on chairs and – sorry, Paul and uh, John and George and Ringo are standing. But they're wearing the same suits, so I imagine it was the same uh, – photo session or around the same time and then mm-hmm. uh the album that you were speaking of and um meet the beatles that's the one with their just black background with their four faces three on the top one on the bottom right their, their faces in, in half shadow kind of yes yeah. so i uh i, I want to hear what you had to say before but i ha- also have a question as you're sitting around this record player on the floor with your girlfriends mm-hmm. listening to this and you're, you know, you're 13 and you're, you're very young, but are you, are you fawning over these, these young men as you're staring at the cover and passing it around? Like what's oh, happening yeah. there? Oh yeah. I, I, yeah. I was going to be Mrs. Paul McCartney. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that was a, not an uncommon <laughs> happening that, that, you know, that people, because for me, I mean, it was CDs for me, but even now with albums, you, you're sitting, you're just sitting and listen. It's not like now we put on a podcast or we put on music and we do, we we're always doing things. I think there was a time and you, uh, expressed a time where all you did was put on the album and just sit and listen to it. You and your girlfriend sat and said not a word. And what do you do? You don't just stare <laughs> off in space. You hold the album. You touch the album. You open it right, up. You right. read the lyrics. You read, you know, some of the notes maybe on who played. Um, and you look at those faces of those handsome young men, you know. And uh, um, I just – I find that very exciting. So I, I imagine that, you know, this album that we're looking at from Please Please Me was probably a little less familiar than the – the Meet the Beatles one for you. Uh, yes, because I didn't even see this album until no. the, I mean, I think my, I think I had one daughter in, in middle school and one daughter in high school in Palm Springs in the 80s, the late mm. 80s sometime. Well, I'm not sure exactly well, when it, well, I forget yeah. when you said it was released in the U.S., but, um, but it, but that's when I got it and couldn't wait. Right. Okay. Just couldn't wait, and there was some fanfare ahead of ahead of time, you know, and so <laughs> there was all this anticipation, and, and and we couldn't order things online. There was no such thing, you know, and so no. so it was a matter of waiting for the release date, and then 
hoping, hoping, hoping that in in my case, it was in Palm Springs by then, um, which is a small resort town in the Mojave Desert in California, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, hoping that a record store somewhere in the desert would would have it on the on that release date and not you know a week later or whatever and and right. I, I, yeah. I i i don't recall to tell you the truth whether i was able to get it on the release date or whether we had to wait because this palm springs is not la it's interesting to me the perspective of this because it just seems to me that photos that i have seen of people on balconies with you know and you can see the different floors in this case above them because this is looking up ordinarily the photos were taken down they they were taken down and the people were coming up and you could see the staircases below you know going Mm. going going into infinity it seemed sometimes and this is the opposite of that so yeah. it's very clever and and very innovative mm-hmm. and that and that ringo star man with that hair haircut he he um <laughs> he's not like those others he, right. he looks like a scallywag <laughs> <laughs> i wouldn't guess that i were you. <laughs> which is i mean i I agree with you and I believe you, but for me, I look at these guys and they look so, you know, straight and mm-hmm. preppy, right? Because <laughs> because that's what we think of, but it's so hard for me to get in my time machine and go back and look at it through the eyes of everyone yeah. else who saw it back then. And I, and I love hearing from people who saw it firsthand and was were around in that time to tell us what, you know, what it really felt like, mm-hmm. which is, is so cool to hear that. I was only going to add... Um... I, the Beatles throughout history, even after their um, band's demise, have, have seemed to create some buzz anytime their music gets re-released on a new format. So I remember how much of a big deal it was when iTunes finally got the Beatles catalog. I think there was even in one of those iconic Apple um, iPod commercials only with Beatles music instead of, uh, you know, whatever other pop music there was at the time. And, and I think something very similar happened, uh, just a couple of years ago when suddenly all their music was available on Spotify as well. Um, I know that's not exactly the same thing as, uh, you know, finally getting the album for the first time or, or even having it all re-released, uh, in the early eighties, but, uh, they seem to have a knack for creating some buzz, maybe because they hold out longer than other, um, artists do when adopting new technologies or things like that. I don't know. Well, that brings us to, um, the tracks. So side one starts with, I saw her standing there. Misery. Anna, go to him. Chains. Boys. 
Ask Me Why. And Please Please Me. And that's the end of side one. Side two starts with Love Me Do. P.S. I Love You. Baby, it's you. Do you want to know a secret? A taste of honey. A taste of honey. Tasting much than There's a place. And the album closes out with Twist and Shout. So 14 tracks, and Ben, we talk about the length of an LP, so because these songs are so short, uh, there's more tracks than we usually get, because I think the the longest ones are just shy of three minutes, so uh, you can fit more songs in when they're shorter songs, obviously. Right. The whole entire album is uh, just 32 minutes long or something like that. Um, quite a bit shorter than what an LP can even allow around 45 minutes of music. So sure. they could have put on uh, uh, a couple more tracks <laughs> on each side, I guess. Uh, I don't know that we need to spend a bunch of time going through these tracks. Um, but if there are ones that stand out that you'd like to tackle, um, that's fine. I, I, I don't know. I think because of how familiar people are with the Beatles music in general, I don't know that we have to go over these tracks so much. Um, no, maybe we can just start, make, make some make s- some comments. Yeah, maybe to start, I will say um, we've had some challenges, I guess, in the past with older albums that all kind of sound similar. And um, this is an interesting one because it it is an older album where almost all the tracks all have a very similar kind of sound, but I don't. Um, I don't get bored with it in the same way that I have with no. some of the other artists that we've tackled. And I don't exactly know why that is. If it's just the the genius of this band or my appreciation or, or love for them. Um, but I, I like this, even though it's not my favorite Beatles music, it's probably the album I've spent the least amount of time with. Um, I still really, I still really enjoy it, even though they're, they're, they're certainly much more simple songs and more, uh, similar sounding than some of their more innovative music that came a little later. Um, I have a few comments on on some of the songs in general, but I wanted to ask you, uh, Anne, if I could, do you have a favorite song from this album or this era? Is that too much to ask to pick no, one? No, no, my <laughs> favorite song. Well, I have, can I have two, please? Of course yeah. you can. Yep. <laughs> I have two. One is I saw her standing there hmm. because it it's, it it is so upbeat, at, but in an almost raucous kind of way, and um, yes. almost a rough and tumble kind of way. Um, and, and I don't mean that in a bad context, but. Uh, and and it's it's just so upbeat and toe tapping and happy and wonderful and 
<clears throat> and uh, Paul McCartney's voice is a little, I think, purposefully rough in this, and and it's just really fun. Mm. And the other one, of course, is Do You Want to Know a Secret because of my boyfriend, George Harrison. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. (laughs) I think it's important for us to point out, since it wasn't that long ago that we tackled Carol King's uh, incredible tapestry album that she has a song on here. Uh, Track four uh, chains is co-written by um, she and her husband. And uh, Mm -hmm. again, she, you know, this is years before tapestry comes out, but she was such a prolific songwriter that she's putting music out into the world for other artists to perform and play. Um, That's another George Harrison track too. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah, he, He sings on that. Um, and also, speaking of songwriters, uh, on side two, Baby It's You was co-written by Burt Bacharach. So another well-known songwriter also yeah. uh, which, lending his talents. Which I never <laughs> knew until I looked at this song list just now. Um, I mean, I, I probably yeah. saw it at some point, you know, I probably saw it on the album or something, but I just don't recall that. And now that I see that it was Burt Bacharach who would have written the, written the music and Mac David who would have written the lyrics. Right. Really spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, as as we're discussing, you know, all these different albums on this list and these artists, it's amazing the how interconnected they are all, all are this spider web of all these artists who work together and yeah. show up here and there um you know when i found out that carol king was on this album i i couldn't believe it i think you told me ben and i had to and i and i want to confess and apologize i had to fact check you right away <laughs> that, can't, that can't be possible carol king got a beatles album no way right, right, yeah. sure enough there she is <laughs> It's pretty awesome. Pretty it cool. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Well, and 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 it's a testament also to I I don't know if they would have themselves, um, the band themselves, chosen this music. Maybe they did, or maybe it was some of them were chosen for them. I, I have no mm. idea. Maybe you do. I don't know. But um, it it uh, could be a, te- a testament to what some of their early influences were as well yeah true i i do feel like the the songs that i like the least are the ones that are written by other people (laughs) i don't know what that says about about me but i i think um well i got a soft spot for uh the movie that i think maybe came out in the 90s uh, that Tom Hanks directed called That Thing You Do. Yeah. Uh, so, kind of about a, uh, a sort of mid-60s <laughs> band kind of making it big. Yeah. And I remember scenes where they're sort of like the record producers handing them someone else's music to play because um, you have to, because we've got a record deal with them or because, you know, X, Y, or Z. And I think uh, there may be, you know, this is their debut. And so there may be some contractual stipulations. If, you're, if we're going to put out a record with 14 of your songs, we've got to take something from our repertoire here and put it on it just to keep these certain people um, uh, happy. I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know the background there, but yeah. certainly possible. I wanted to make just a few comments in general. Um, something that I like on this album that 
I think is not necessarily unique to the time period, but really stands out as unique early Beatles is the harmonica featured on at least three of the tracks. Hmm. And I was excited to learn that that is uh, John Lennon on the harmonica doing a pretty good job, I might say. Yeah, Um, yeah, for Love Me Do, it's so so signature mm-hmm. on that song when you, you, the first note when you hear that harmonica come in and it's not like um, it's not like a blues harmonica like we would hear you know on a heavy blues track it's a little different mm-hmm. um, and it's a nice sound and I really like it I love the vocal harmonies on this album uh, the guys get to show off their vocal chops um both as lead vocalists and also as guys who can back each other up and uh, can sing technically as well and, and create really nice harmonies. So that's another thing I enjoy. And I've mentioned it before, but I'm going to say it again. John Lennon's vocal on Twist and Shout is absolutely breathtaking. I don't know how he does it. I don't know how his vocal cords ever recovered from that performance even one day. Uh, it just sounds like he's ripped them right out of his throat. And it's uh, it's so cool to listen to. And I love that performance. I think it was held till the end of the recording session for very that very reason. That oh, exactly. I was, they're afraid I was that... just going to say, I, I hope that maybe it was the last track that they recorded because otherwise I think that's he, would, right. he would have been in pain uh, you yeah, know, yeah, sort of sure. if, if, they had, if they had recorded this first or even, you know, sixth or seventh. Right, right. And since we're talking about, uh, we mentioned this album being released, re-released in the U.S. in the early 80s, uh, that song always reminds me of an 80s movie that I watched a lot as a kid, which was Ferris Bueller's Day Off, that famous scene where he's traveling down uh, on the float, lip-syncing Great to a uh, yeah. shout in the, 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 like the Oktoberfest-style parade or whatever. Anyways, it's another memory. And, and uh, yeah, a happy end and a happy sound to go, to go along with That's happy, right. happy yeah. action on screen. And, yeah, just yeah. It's sheer perfection. <laughs> it really is. I, I love that this album was nearly called off the Beatle track a little uh, oh. that seems like such a dad pun title uh, <laughs> when I saw that I chuckled and thought oh that would have been so lovely off the Beatle track oh, thank, anyway thank goodness somebody mixed that one <laughs> I guess so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would have thrown the cool factor right out of the window yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's too oopsie for words <laughs> yeah that's right um, and one thing that we started just a few albums ago was a, um, a Spotify playlist where we pick a couple tracks from each album and add them to this ever-growing list of our favorite songs as we go through the 500 greatest albums of all time. Um, and when we have a guest, we often ask them to pick a favorite track. You've given us a couple of your favorites already. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if we forced you to pick one, um, <laughs> which one Between would it be? Between the two from? of them? Yeah. I saw her standing there, and do you want to know a secret? Yeah, and if you can't pick between, maybe we'll just say those are the two songs that. that oh, I make think the we should do that. Week. Let's All just right. pick those. Two. <laughs> <laughs> it's Sophie's choice. That may- <laughs> yeah, that, that that just makes it easy. Uh, you know what? I, right. You know what? I'll tell you something. If I had to make a choice, I would say, "Do you want to know a secret?" Just because. Hmm. 
of, it's George. of George and his accent in that song, his speci- his very specific <laughs> heavy thick accent um, in that song. I like it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good choice. And that helps us out. That means that Mike and I don't have to wrestle over uh, what the second track is that we're adding. So, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Perfect. And, and, and as time went by, as the years went by, he began to lose the thickness of that accent. He still has right. a strong accent, but, but he be, and I think they all began to lose the thickness of their of their Liverpool accents, and it just sounded more British. I think yes, yeah, everyday right. British, the generic British mm-hmm. accent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. right. As we move into conclusions, we ask the question: Does this album still feel relevant? And you can take it in whatever direction you want to go with this one. Um, and do you want to start? Does this album still feel relevant for you, for you? Yes, absolutely. And first of all, I I should clarify that I believe that every Beatles album is relevant in its mm. own unique way. This, here, here. this is this is relevant because these are very early songs. The the ones that they wrote. These are very early songs. Right. And, yes. And this was the jumping off point for them. Mm-hmm. And that means something. Very significant mm-hmm. part like of their that. of their history, yeah, yeah for sure. I think um, I think I like what you said. With uh, every Beatles album is relevant, but I think, especially because this is a link to that that brief moment of the popularity of this subgenre called skiffle. <laughs> I think for that alone, I think there's some like historical relevancy here too. That it's important to hold on to this as like a moment in time. Um, I think it's a good example of just. Uh, pop rock songwriting too like i think they're just well-crafted uh upbeat happy songs i don't know that they're necessarily um songs that would be hits if they were released today but they're they're just a lot of fun mm-hmm. and i think i think there's relevancy in that how about you mike uh i struggled with it a bit i think that I feel that some of their later albums are more relevant in terms of what we hear today. However, in terms of what the vast majority of the population will still recognize as the backbone of popular music and rock music today, anybody I think ages 30 and up will be very familiar with most of the Beatles catalog, mm-hmm. most people. So for that, it is, I think that some of the ways the instruments are used, uh, you know, maybe are a few, a few steps away from influencing today's music. Uh, although they, they've all led to it. Uh, you know, I think about the harmonica, even some of the maybe folk or bluegrass you'd hear today would use harmonica in a bit of a different style. Um, the, the kind of the skiffle style, Style, you know, we don't hear that as much today uh, in uh, directly influencing what we hear today. But I would say in terms of song structure and the way the songs are composed and the, the harmonies in the vocals, I think those are things are very relevant. And the fact that it's just the Beatles, of course, is always very relevant, 100%. But I think this is if this is the earliest kind of studio version of the 
the Beatles we have in terms of a whole complete album, then this is maybe some of the least relevant in terms of what their sound developed into and what it encouraged other people to do. But I, I think if you had to force me to say yes or no, I'd say yes, but I'd say, you know, it, it, it was probably, and probably the least familiar to me personally, I'm much more familiar with their later stuff. And I think that that's what I got into first. And I think that's some of the things that we hear more on the radio. Um, so that's just my, just from where I come from in terms of my journey with the Beatles and how I came to hear their music, which would, which was different, I think, than you, Ben, and certainly different than the way you very naturally heard their music and as you grew up with them as you grew up through your teen years growing up at the same time the Beatles were releasing their music which uh I've kind of very jealous about (laughs) (laughs) well everybody has their own time in this life in this world sure (laughs) yeah that's right you just happen to be in the better one (laughs) well I, I, I I got to see all the good bands that's for sure that's right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so central focus, the reason that we started this podcast is to kind of look at this list and ask, does this make sense? So the question we ask is, was it sound logic for Rolling Stone to put this album at number 39? Um, and just curious what you think, uh, Ben and Anne, maybe Anne, if you go first, I, it, this can be a tricky question if you're not as familiar with some of the other music, but just in general, uh, knowing also that there's been a few other Beatles albums already on this list, what do you think about you know 39th best album of all time? Please please me. How do you feel about and, that? And it's I, I don't recall what what you Mike or Ben I'm not sure which said in terms of that list. It's 39 out of how many? 100 or 50 or how many? Oh, 500. 500. Oh, okay. 500. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of damn it albums. <laughs> <laughs> and for 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 this. In 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 my mind, for this album, which really was the the genesis of Beatles albums, mm-hmm. even though you know most of us didn't get it until twenty years later, um, or more right. than that, twenty five <laughs> years later, almost. Um, this really was the genesis of of the, the Beatles and their recordings, and so for it to make thirty nine at number thirty nine out of five hundred. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty remarkable. Do you know if there are other mm-hmm. Beatles albums that were higher on the list? Not yeah, on we the list that, that, that were that were closer to the top, so to speak. Yeah, we like to talk about um, what other albums by the same artists are on the mm-hmm. list. So. Uh, be happy to run it down for you so uh sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band is number one great number one best album ever (laughs) of all time (laughs) which i think is i think we both agree it's a pretty good choice it's a phenomenal album my favorite album and um sorry my favorite beatles album one of my favorite albums revolver comes in at number three Hmm. rubber soul is number five uh, the White Album is number 10. So they have four of the top 10. Yeah. Which, <laughs> yes. Which is significant. Abbey, 
Abbey Road is number 14, so that's five in the top 14. And then uh, we take a break from the Fab Four until this album we just talked about, which is number 39. And then uh, Meet the Beatles uh, is number 53. So that's the one that you had. And uh, Hard Day's Night is number 307. Help is 331. Let It Be is 392. And uh, this is, of course, from the 2012 version of this list, but the original 2002 version of the list, sorry, 2003 version of the list had with the Beatles at number 420, but it got removed on the second version. Mm. So there you have it. <laughs> you know, with the the Revolver album, the artwork is is sketches of their faces, and it's all it's in black and white. Yes. And one of my brothers, who would have just been a kid at the time, took crayons and, and <gasps> colored in between between the different strands of hair. <laughs> on, on my oh, album no. <laughs> I was part completely furious but part heart sick as well you know and yeah. um, uh. and like I said I, I eventually forgave him <laughs> Matt, is that uh, colored in album cover still in your collection oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. or in your yeah. vinyl and, you still and, have the, the crayon version I have the crayon version and looking back on it now it just cracks me up you know it's just hysterical but, oh, <laughs> but yeah. back then it was That's as if awesome. the world had come to an end you know I can imagine That's that awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh my that is very funny. I'm glad you wow. shared that story. I'm going to think about that every time I pull the album out now. <laughs> Just reds and greens and purples and red and yellows and yeah, right. whatnot in between right. all the different strands of hair. <laughs> That's wonderful. It's funny. I, you know what? That's what I should do. I need to release the uh, adult coloring book of oh, Beatles album covers. That's <laughs> very clever. Yeah. There you go. And then we could do this and black and white pictures from Yellow Submarine <laughs> because it's all big drawings and uh Yeah. Oh man, I'll I'll give you a I'll give you a um a percentage of the royalties uh, <laughs> for that and for helping with that memory. Oh. And your brother too. No, he gets nothing. Are you kidding? <laughs> okay. <laughs> nothing. That's funny. Um Sometimes another thing we talk about, and this is this is all our conclusion section seems to just grow. But <laughs> our, um, sometimes we like to talk about if any uh, covers or other versions of songs come to mind when you listen to this uh, album. And sometimes bands just aren't covered as much, and other albums have tons of covers, like Joni Mitchell's Blue and Carol King's Tapestry, just lots of other versions. Is there anything that comes to mind for uh, Ben or Anne of uh, covers or other versions of songs from for this, this particular album? album? Yeah. yeah. The only thing that I can think of looking through the list, of course, Twist and Shout and some of these others are covers, but um, but yes. uh, as as is A Taste of Honey, but um, Herb Alpert and the team Tijuana Brass had a huge hit with their instrumental version of A Taste of Hunt. That was the first thing that came to my <laughs> mind, too. <laughs> yeah, that is, isn't that a fun yeah. song? 
the way they do that. Oh, it's such well, a blast. And, and I remember years ago, a few years ago, I'm not sure what year it was now, but um, a few years ago watching, but it was some kind of a replay of um, the induction of the Beatles, I guess, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And um, there were all, okay. I don't know if you all saw that, but um, so the stage after the you know ceremony was done, um, all of these huge artists, recording artists, came onto the stage, and the closing moment of the of the whole night was I saw her standing there oh. <laughs> with all of them singing it, and it was oh my god, it was just a who's who. It was it was just fantastic. That's awesome. Oh, they had so much fun with it, and it was it was just so great. And there was a you know tribute to George Harrison and whatnot, and um, it, it was just the coolest. I, thing. Yeah, I, I can see uh, Mick Jagger and Bob Dylan, and looks like Tina. Oh, did you I'm pull just it Trying up? to find did a picture, Tina up? Turner. That looks like that might be mm-hmm. Ronnie Hawkins. Um, yeah, there's tons of people there. Jeez, mm. wow. Um, and, and the musicians on stage yeah, yeah, also right. were just, yeah. you know, cream of the crop. Wow, cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think that just about wraps it up. I want to say yeah. that was a ton of fun. <laughs> I had a great time. Can, and can I tell you one more yes, thing? Yes, please do. That, that, just, that just came to mind a couple of minutes ago, and I just made a note. <laughs> um, when <laughs> So... In the 60s, uh, for maybe two or three years or so, there was a TV show in black and white called The Patty Duke Show. And some people will remember Patty Duke. And it was, and the guys, no, no boys or guys who I knew cared a whit about this show. But it was so popular because all the girls all the teenage girls were glued to the set when every week when the Patty Duke show came on. And here's why. Because the premise of the show was that there were, were two identical cousins, one who lived with her family in the U.S., another who, who was born and raised in England, and she came over because her father was going to be traveling somewhere, and she came over and lived with the American family. Oh, okay. And she had this and she had this British accent. And we tuned into the show because there had been the British invasion hmm. and she had this British accent oh. in an American household. And all of the girls, um, every girl that I knew, including myself, was absolutely taken by this show and hanging on every word every and of course patty do play both roles but (laughs) um hanging on every word whenever the the cousin kathy the other one was cousin patty Mm -hmm. whenever the cousin kathy opened her mouth it was okay everybody quiet you know kathy's going to speak and and yeah and the, the guys didn't care about that kind of thing, but, but. well and it's been an absolute pleasure um 
thanks so much for reconnecting after uh, our time apart. And we only have a long time. We, we only have a few albums to go until we get to meet the Beatles at number fifty-three. So if you feel up to it, oh. join us again in, uh, in a few that. months when we get around. To I would love to. <laughs> yeah. I I would love to do that, and it's great talking to you again, Ben. We 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 have stayed in touch via Facebook in one way or another, and um, over time. And I I was so happy to see this year as well as last year i think it was that you put a photo of the the pasadena city hall on facebook and so that so that was really fun and 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 i have to say that that your blog your blog um was it the sky is blue in pasadena the sky yeah. is big in pasadena and and it seems to me that every photo or almost every photo had a whole lot of yep. sky in it but all but also all these different places in That's pasadena right. and it was, it was a very popular <laughs> very popular site yeah. well, so so that was great and and mike it, it was such a pleasure meeting you and talking to you and and it sounds like you two are just having a so far, yep. yeah. 400 Thanks, and 461 left to go. <laughs> <Woo>. <laughs> what do we have coming up here next time on the SoundLogic podcast? Well, next time we're going to talk about album number 40 on the top 500 list. And this is called Forever Changes by the band named Love. Hmm. Is that one that you're familiar with, Anne? It's not. No, it's, it's kind of one. Of, it, <laughs> it's it's supposedly one of those hidden gems, and uh, we're looking forward to listening to something new. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.